0: Welcome to the December episode of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Gianolfi,
1: And my name is Howard Marlow.
0: Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today for hosting us. Hope everyone had a very good Thanksgiving, or at least as good as Thanksgiving as possible this year. Was certainly different for, uh, for each of us this year, don't you think, Howard?
1: Absolutely. Uh, absent All the family and other things like that. Yep. Yep. At least there was still some, still some
0: good food. Um, Today we're going to give you guys a quick update on the Appropriations Process and the Water Resources Development Act, uh, an executive order uh, from the Trump administration that came out on October 21st that's just now coming into play, and then we'll follow up with a discussion on housing prices and sea level rise. Quick note to our listeners, we've updated our federal bill tracker, which tracks all the new legislation in the 116th Congress, and you can find that on our website at www.waterlog.net. Let's get started. So looking at appropriations, uh, we've got two bills in mind. The Senate bill actually doesn't have a number yet, but the House bill is uh, HR 7613. The Senate has released all of its 12 appropriation bills for FY21 in hopes of getting a a budget together uh, that can be agreed upon by the House prior to December 11th, which would avoid a government shutdown. The House has proposed nearly $132 million in coastal funding this year, while the Senate has proposed $170 million. The House's coastal proposal is roughly $15 million short of the FY20 enacted level of $146 million. So we're hoping that this year's funding remains level or shows an increase above the FY20 uh, level. In addition to a healthy figure for the Corps of Engineers, we're also excited about the additional new study starts and construction starts this year. Last year, six new study and six new construction starts were authorized. This year, the Senate is asking for nine new study starts and seven new construction starts, while the House is requesting both seven new studies and seven new construction starts. Seven is great, but eight is better.
1: Good math, ma'am. Way to go. You know, I think that uh, one of the other things that's coming along the pike here is the Water Resource Development Act. Uh, Now, back in July, The House passed its legislation, H.R. 7575. Senate Environmental and Public Works Committee passed its much broader version, uh, dubbed the America's Water Infrastructure Act in May, but never brought that bill to the floor. So what we were wondering in previous podcasts, you know, what's happening with the bill? Basically, the staff has been working, the two committees have been working behind the scenes trying to get a conference version, that is, work out the differences between the two bills. Uh, following a lead set in 2016 and 2018, the Senate version of word includes significant provisions on drinking water that are not touched uh, by the House bill at all. So we expect a resolution to come in some form of a final bill passed just prior to the end of the uh, congressional season, which is the end of December. So. Word will be coming. It's just uh, going to be a surprise, maybe like uh, Santa Claus. And in terms of timeline on appropriations,
0: are we about on time?
1: Yeah, given the last several years, uh, as long as we can make it before the end of the year, we uh, get a sigh of relief. If it goes into next year, we're in trouble. Uh, we can go into a lot of reasons for that. But bottom line is when you have a bill, appropriations bill that goes into the following year with a new Congress, you really have to start from scratch. And it screws up all federal agencies in our area, Corps of Engineers, a lot of other grant programs under NOAA and the like, can't possibly proceed normally. So, if we get it done, and I think they will get it done uh, before they leave at the end of the year, then uh, we're gonna be on schedule.
0: That's great insight. What about, what about the Water Resource Development Act?
1: Warda also will get done. Um, somehow they start uh, with these vastly different bills you can look at the number of pages in the Senate bill, which has got a couple hundred more pages in the House bill. Different approaches entirely, but when you look at it, there's a core of it that's the same, and then they get to agree on you know, what is non-core, and I really use that term as C-O-R-E, but same as C-O-R-P-S, so the drinking water stuff. Um, water infrastructure is very important, and if, uh, uh, you know, if the Senate leaders feel that they need to have that, then uh, one way or another, it's going to be worked out.
0: Good. So, an executive order passed by the Trump administration, uh, or sorry, put out by the Trump administration, October twenty-first would effectively move career employees to Schedule F classification, which would essentially make them uh, political appointees. Uh, the, this is a job. This is a move that could take away job security for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of federal workers. Now. This would essentially make individuals in positions of confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating character subject to dismissal or reassignment during a presidential transition. The primary stated purpose, and I emphasize that for the executive order, is that over 25% of the existing workforce believes that the poor performance is not addressed properly within agencies. Employee jobs would be vulnerable before Trump leaves office if they are considered to have poor performance or if they have... Resisted any of Trump's priorities. This allows Trump to dismiss any of his employees they simply may not like, or believes that they won't suit his agenda in the next administration. So, if Trump can use the executive order to get rid of employees just as quickly, is it possible that Biden could bring them back?
1: Yes, it's possible. Um, like anybody who's lost their job, somebody has come in to fill that position because it isn't. A position that's being eliminated is a position that is where people are being told that we want to remove your civil service protections, make you subject to, uh, in essence, the whim of the president, and then somebody else can come in. So, what do you do with that somebody else? Fire him or her? Um, you know, everybody's gone unemployment insurance, things like that. I think one of the employees that we uh, deal with. Uh, at the Office of Management and Budget may have already lost their job. Um, And I think what's really important here is to go back to why we have civil service. Uh, Back in the 1880s, roughly, uh, people got tired of corruption at the federal level. I know people talk about corruption today, but corruption then was rampant open. And you did it simply by putting in your buddies uh, male or female but primarily male in those days into whatever positions you wanted to put them into and you didn't give them very much supervision and all they did was did their whatever they felt their job was and so um, civil service reform came in and We have the entire federal civil service Where poor performance is addressed? You can if you get poor performance ratings You don't get promoted to the next level or you can get fired but there's an appeal process. It's a whole process there. So if President Trump came along and said, "All oh, these people are not doing a good job. I really think we got to be able to get rid of them without having to go through quote unions." Mm-hmm. Now government employees belong to a union, but it's nothing like if you have a union in the automobile workers. The, these folks don't have the same. The unions don't have the same powers, but they do speak up, uh, and they are there to represent the interests of the workers. Bottom line here is that all Trump was trying to do is to say, well, if it looks like you're making policy, and I'm going to determine that by what my political smell or whatever it is, then we're going to take you out of civil service and put you in what they call Schedule F, which is a political appointee, which means at my will, you can be gone. No appeal. Well, one of the another. good
0: things about about civil service is there is an enormous body of knowledge that's that's been you know, accumulated over many years is these people who have worked in the same positions for you know, half a decade to a decade or more. Of course, everyone, everyone may have certain biases, but there's a, there's a degree of reliability and certainty you have with, in terms of trust and, and the, yeah. that wealth of knowledge that, that some of these uh, people bring. Same goes for the professional staff members on, on congressional committees.
1: You know, absolutely, in and, and dealing with the executive branch, the federal agencies, um, let's talk about the, uh, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. A whole bunch of those people, including Dr. Fauci, are civil service employees. They are there. We all know that the, uh, somebody in a civil service, if you've worked in the federal government, you know somebody in the civil service who is covered by civil service who is simply pushing papers around. And you say, well, that person's not really doing their job. Well, problem is they probably are doing their job. Whether their job is supervised properly or not, the issue is what is their institutional knowledge, which is the point that you got to. So the pushback that Trump was getting, whether it be from CDC or from any agency, was from career State Department, career uh, Health and Human Services, career uh, Homeland Security people, who said, no, we have institutions, we have a history, we have laws, and this is the way they're supposed to be. And he's not happy about that. And so he figures he's gonna make some lasting impact on that. So uh, it's not a good idea to remove people who have civil service protection from that protection. Um, It is a good idea to make sure that uh, their supervisors and managers, including the political appointees, who are above the civil service managers are making sure that people who are not doing their jobs are not promoted and who are told that they have to improve and they have to be held to a higher standard. And uh, it's a lot harder to do that than it is to say, take 10, 20,000, 50,000 or whatever it is and let's just you know take their protections away. I think it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I don't wanna go back to the 1850s and 60s and 70s
0: well, it's a small group of Democrats who are, who are working to block the executive order. Uh, they're actually trying to throw that into the must-pass appropriations bill before December 11th. Yeah.
1: Not likely to happen, yeah. that that's going to happen, but at least they're speaking up. And I think uh, the rest will be up to uh, President-elect Biden when he takes office to figure out what he's going to do. Speaking of Biden
0: and, and the Pentagon, uh, he has tapped Michelle Flournoy, a former... Uh, professional working under the Defense Department during the Obama administration as a potential choice uh, to lead the Pentagon. Uh, The Department of Defense, which has a massive budget and an equally large appetite for fossil fuels, could help reprioritize green initiatives that would reduce expenses for the department over the long term. Just Just so our listeners know, the Pentagon is the largest single consumer of petroleum in the world and the top consumer of energy in the United States. This is because it provides housing and transportation for hundreds of thousands of people uh, and could fuel a boom in both uh, the electric vehicle market as well as, the, as well as energy efficiency. I mean, just think of all the operations that the, that the federal government and the military in particular you know, have to undergo to move resources, move personnel, people, even just to uh, take care of the communities that they have. I mean, all of these camps, this is a lot of petroleum products, plus all the aviation fuel and all these things. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense you know how much is used. Just yeah. no, it, try that very North significant.
1: North uh, I recall uh, being in North Carolina uh, around Camp uh, Lejeune and, and other bases that are there. Uh, when those folks are out moving, just doing their training exercises, and they're on the roads moving equipment, and it is huge yep. to see all the kinds of equipment that's there. Also, the other end of it is not only the petroleum and the fossil fuels they're consuming, but the risk that a lot of their facilities have being on the coast, mm. which the Defense Department has actually been far out in front of all agencies of recognizing that risk. Right, national security. So before the, the word climate change became uh, con, you know contracted into four-letter word, it was something that they were working on and they continue to work on while it right. was a four-letter word. So, you know, if if uh, the, uh, Ms. Fluor and I is going to, you know, tackle the issue of the, the degree of consumption end of it, as well as continue to pursue the uh, risk, I think that'll be a tremendous benefit to our uh, our entire society. Be less dependent, uh, you know, on uh, fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. Now, I
0: think that I think that leads us into uh, a topic that. If I remember correctly, we, we touched on in our last podcast, but I know that you've put out uh, quite a few articles recently, is the impact uh, that climate change and coastal flooding, sea level rise, whatever you want to call it, is having on home values. And what we've kind of thought about is what's, you know, what's coming is an imminent mortgage disaster. Um, and there was a quote that I found in Politico uh, that I wanted to read. because it just, it just put it better than I could. Here it goes. Buyers and lenders are not able to assess the risks of climate change uh, damage by using simple apps, a technological revolution that has placed a warning label on millions of properties from seaside uh, New England to low-lying areas vulnerable to hurricanes across the southeast to the arid fire-prone hills of California. And once buyers start refusing to pay top dollar for such homes and insurers stop underwriting policies on them, the more than trillion dollar Fannie Freddie May Uh, Fannie Freddie portfolio could take an enormous hit big enough to knock the economy into recession or worse.
1: I think it's critical. Uh, We've got a post coming out this week that'll go into more depth on this. Uh, But bottom line is uh, that, pardon me, banks um, issue mortgages, obviously, to uh, condo owners, homeowners, um, any kind of property owner. And then they turn around and they sell those back to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, federal agencies that are there to buy up portfolios of uh, mortgages, and uh, now it becomes difficult uh, for them to simply decide that well, because climate risk, let's say, uh, let's pick your favorite area of uh, in in, uh, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, Remind me of the name of that, since it's going to It's next to Avalon. Stone Harbor. Ah, Stone Harbor. So Stone Harbor. And let's pick Avalon at the same time. Um, And they say, oh, look, climate risk, look, they've been flooded. This is instantly hypothetical, because it's not (laughs) I'm just being totally hypothetical here. But they have flooded so much, and they've had to rebuild so much, and they keep on getting these higher and bigger homes, they're going to keep on flooding. We look at the statistics anybody can look at the maps that are done by usgs NOAA, all of those things plus the reports that are done by groups like first street foundation force uh, 427 moody's, moody's yeah. all of that and they say look this is not such a good investment because what are we investing in will that property still be a good credit risk for us now there are a lot of ifs ands and buts to that but let's suppose we take that now to the local bank of uh, uh, Avalon, New Jersey, uh, which let's say uh, has 500 properties in the Avalon-Stone Harbor area. Again, made up name, I hope. And uh, suppose they decide uh, they would like to get away from doing mortgages on Oceanside. Maybe they'll do the mortgage, maybe they will dump it off fairly quickly to somebody who's into the higher risk area, maybe they just decide, well, you know, we'd really rather not. What I'm saying is that one number risk, number one risk there that we're talking about right now is it may be harder to get mortgages. It may be harder to get mortgages at rates that are reasonable. Uh, like when I bought a house, mortgages were 16% in the Washington, D.C. area. It's obviously a lot of years ago. I was able to buy it at 4.5% because I had a VA, Veterans Affairs-backed mortgage. If you didn't have one of those, 60% was a heck of a lot of an interest rate to be paying, right? I saw your eyes light up on that one because mm-hmm. people are refinancing to get from 4 to 2% yeah. right now. Now, let's take the other end of this thing, property values. Property values are not increasing along the coast as fast as they, Used to include
0: still going up. Want to make that clear? Still yeah. going up, but not in, nearly in as fast as they used to.
1: There's some evidence in some areas that there's been a decrease, uh, where people have a choice of moving to higher ground within that same region. But you're abs- you're absolutely right. Uh, they're still going up, but I know when my town, which is not along the coast, plans for its first budget, what it does is assumes that there's going to be higher property values over the next three years, when superior the period when uh, our county does reevaluations of property. And so they say, well, okay, we're going to plan on that and therefore our revenues are going to be going up and therefore we can pay next year for our new sidewalks or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, well, you can't do that quite so easily anymore. And so there are a couple of choices. What model's choices? Raise property taxes, so you pay at a higher rate. Uh, Now, the choice is not to do the sidewalks. Now, let's take that to the bottom line level of sea level rise. Flooding, for those of you who don't believe in sea level rise. Let's just take flooding, which people do believe in. It's happening more. So, suppose my town are located along the coast, and we wanted to do something about flooding. We're going to have to go and either use our own budget or go into borrowing. In order to be able to do something because right now there's not a heck of a lot coming from the federal government and states you know sorry they're not doing very much and
0: if you want to move quickly i mean if you are getting money from the federal government either through a state or through choose you know a federal project it's yeah. going to take you a lot of time you got a lot of time a lot, a lot of, of paperwork,
1: and a lot of, all that stuff you know we had flooding in a not in our non-coastal town we had flooding along a creek years ago, and we did actually surprise me at the time. It was an Army Corps of Engineers project for a little stream. We were able to control the flooding, and now making it more nature-based and all of that. Now the issue here is the local governments are going to be where the action is on flooding, sea level rise, and climate change. The the words are going to come out of Washington. The regulations are going to come out of Washington. The technical expertise is going to come out of Washington. But the actual action of what happens is going to come out of local governments. Not necessarily acting alone, they can get in regional collaborations, but it's going to come on the local level. and With property values declining, with the possibility of mortgages, and all the other things we just talked about, it's going to be potential for calamity is the hardest word, but it makes it more difficult. There's
0: risk. I mean, there's there's not much more to say other than that there there is risk. The risk is going up. and I mean, the storm season we had this year, uh, actually, I believe, just came to a close yesterday. Yes. Was it 28, 27, 28, 29? I thought it was 29. I mean, geez.
1: You know, it's higher than most people can count, you know, and and therefore you get into the point where there's risk. The, The sooner the local governments act before property values start to actually decline, before there starts to be some way of banks and other institutions looking at well, we'd really not rather stay away from doing mortgages in this area. All of those kinds of things. Before that happens, act now and start figuring out how to implement. Start the
0: conversation some, with your neighbor.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea. And say, hey, neighbor, should we be doing something?
0: Know, we,
1: who can we call? We, we use a town server which covers everything sometimes from ridiculous subjects to important subjects. And the fact is that uh, you get those conversations going among neighbors but a uh, stormwater runoff was one of those that we got Well, started in terms of what is your susceptibility to flooding and to sea level rise, and what can you do about it? For those communities that already have studies and say, oh, we've got a resilience study, uh, stay tuned to us. Uh, we'll be talking uh, and posting about things that we think that uh, you can do now that will get you results within the next few years.
0: All right, well, we hope everyone uh, has a wonderful holiday coming up. We'll be back uh, in the beginning of January with a new year, uh, just shy of a, of a new administration. And we'll look forward to talking with you guys then.
1: Take care. In the meantime, stay tuned to our Waterlog uh, page on LinkedIn. We're posting all the time there on uh, updates of what's going on in Congress, some articles of interest and things like that. and. Uh, And then, you know, that's a good way for you, just you don't even have to follow us, although we'd like to be followed. Please uh, take a look there so that you can keep up to date with us. All right,
0: folks, take care. Happy holidays. Bye-bye.